Whispering unsuccessful author, especially an unsuccessful young author. When the story on which Con Webster had been working for months, a story that had been practically ordered from an outline, came back with the traditional rejection slip, Con touched bottom. The story had been written to buy a few pieces of furniture for an apartment. Con was walking down a dark street, mentally as well as actually, one evening when he heard his name spoken by a familiar voice. He was under a lamppost. He glanced up, and his face brightened. That's a true news. Well, this is a surprise. What are you doing in town? I'm here to see a publisher, worse luck. A publisher? Yeah. Of course, I've been giving him prime and applied psychology has stop the public interest, and I've been asked to write a book. Some people have all the luck. Well, the quality of your voice works, and it disturbs me. You were planning to be a professional writer when you graduated from college last June. You showed promise of being a very good one, too. Breaking the head of the English department used to speak very highly of your work. He showed me your graduation thesis. It was a superb bit of satire. Yeah, that thesis gave me big ideas. I was going to set the world on fire with my brilliant prose, but yeah, I got nowhere. Are you going to write a textbook, sir? No, no, not a textbook. The idiotic editor, the one with whom I've been talking all afternoon, wants me to treat the subject of crime and applied psychology in a popular and amusing fashion. But to my mind, there's nothing either popular or amusing about crime and applied psychology. Yeah, I see what you mean, sir. Now, uh, take juvenile delinquents, for instance. They're neither popular nor amusing, but... Next day, I just had a bring down to them. Walked out to my hotel with me. Hey, Bob, be here, and I'll cup of coffee. Over the coffee, I'll explain the idea. So the middle-aged man and the young one walked back to the hotel in which the professor was stopping. And when they were seated at a small table in the corner of the coffee shop, the professor asked a question. And Khan answered it frankly. Yes, sir. I am down on the mouth. Things have been going badly for me. I haven't sold a thing since I graduated from college. My small backlog of money is not at all until it's not even a drop in a very large bucket. Is there a woman in the case? Yes, sir. I'm desperately in love, but I can't finance a marriage unless I sell something darn fast. The girl's father's well-to-do, and he's trying to keep us apart. Well, see, she's in my room. No, losing unless I get some gold mighty quick. Yeah, this idea of mine will... So, who baking, my boy? I'll put it on the line. How would you like to write my book? You mean write a book that you'll sign? You mean uh, be a ghostwriter? Yeah. Of course, I realize it's dishonest to take credit for another man's work, but my back's against the wall. My back's against the wall, too. Ghostwriting is not dishonest, sir. It's done every day. Well, then, I'll amend myself, Judgment, and say that I've realized it would be unfair to you. The book must necessarily carry my name, and you'll get no credit whatsoever. I won't tell the publisher, I won't even tell my wife that I've employed an outsider to do this job for me. 
I can only comfort you by saying that scientific books seldom have a big sale. Well, the thing would be a ghost of this I'm too, well, conceited to relish the idea. But I'd rather be your ghost than, than a stranger. Well, it doesn't have to be a very long book. I'll show you my correspondence to the publisher, and you can use your own judgment as far as wordage is concerned. I'll give you my notes, you pay for the typing, and the midnight oil you may be forced to burn. Uh, what would you want for ghostwriting about Webster? I mean, uh, what monetary consideration? Hmm, heck, I wouldn't know what to ask. You know, let's say, uh, $500 for the actual job and a cut on the liabilities. Yeah. I'll give you two fifty at once, and the other two fifty when the completed manuscript is in my hands. Yeah, well, it is. You certainly are saving my bacon, sir. Will you excuse me while I go for my girl and tell her the good news? In just a moment, Betty Davis will be back again. But first, this might sound a little confusing at first, but if you've heard of the library having been woven well, you have credit the United States Officers' Wives Club, formerly at Wheelis Air Base, for inventing the idea. The woman got interested in a school for some 300 homeless boys under the jurisdiction of the Libyan government. The school had native teachers, but had precious little in the way of essential educational aids. The fact they didn't have a library started the wheels of progress in motion. The Officers' Wives Club could easily have raised a fund for books, but members decided this wasn't the sensible thing to do under the circumstances. The boys were just learning to read and write, and it would take a while before they could use a library and realize its value. So instead of books, the club bought the school a loom and a supply of yarn. The plan called for the boys to learn how to weave barricade, the soft cloth used by native women to make dresses, and the popular fabric with Westerners who managed to visit Libya. Proceeds from initial sales of the material were invested in more yarn until a sizable stock existed. Then the school diverted the profits for books. Not only did the boys help earn their own library, but they also got vocational training in weaving. One of the wives of the club was asked, how they happened to hit on this particular idea. She replied, it just evolved. Elaborating a bit, she explained that the members of the club thought it was a good step toward getting Libya's future citizens to recognize the fact that Americans wished them well, and that they were willing to do what they could to help their immediate needs. Finally, she added, we can do with more knowing in North Africa these days. Yes, these homeless boys of Libya can hold their heads up and be proud they had the chance to earn their own library and keep it going with a loan and a supply of yarn. These United States officers' wives gave us all a thought to remember. We are Americans. As we go, so goes America. And now back to our story with Betty Davis. Professor Tremont lost his guilt feeling as he watched Conrad Webster's expression change from despair to incredulous delight. That very night, he handed over his notes and Conrad went to work. A month later, he presented the finished manuscript to the professor, who forwarded it post-haste to the publisher. He'd almost forgotten the incident until he received ten complimentary copies when the book came off the press. He laid them on his desk, but three days later, as he sat at the luncheon table with his wife. Oh, I'll get it, dear. I wish people would call either before or after meals. This is the Tremont residence. 
Yes, Professor Hoyt Tremont lives here. Who's Lee Hoyt Tremont? You want to set up an interview? Well, I suppose about his experimental crime laboratory plan. Oh, the Bullock. No, we didn't see the reviews on Sunday. We, we went for a long drive. The professor isn't very much interested in newspapers. Uh, yes, I'll ask him. Hoy? Hoy, the man wants to interview you about that book. You know? Why did you want to interview me about the book? Well, I suppose he likes it. He says it's got a marvelous review. I haven't read it myself, of course, but I shall. When may the reporter see you, dear? This afternoon, I suppose. I'm not doing anything else. Well, what time shall I say? Four o'clock, if it's convenient. The professor says four o'clock. Will that be convenient? Yes, I'll tell the professor. Goodbye. Hoyt, he said you were the first man to make science bearable and entertaining. He said your satirical sense of humor was superb. I didn't realize you were such a toothache, old thing, darling. You've always been so deadly serious with me. Sometimes you've scared me. Oh, I... I, I feel like a fool when I'm being interviewed. I'm like an imposter. Mm, Mr. Jekyll and Dr. Tremont. <laughs> I love you dearly, right? But I never thought you had a satirical sense of humor. Really, I didn't. While Professor Tremont was being interviewed by the reporter, the lecture bureau called and asked him to sign a contract for a series of informal talks at women's clubs. The fee they offered was unbelievably large. But Hoyt hung up the receiver testily and turned back to the reporter. They're all after you, huh? Didn't she, anyway? I wouldn't know why. <laughs> You've read your own book, haven't you? Or do you dictate by ear and then the bark? Well, naturally, I'm skinned to it. <laughs> that sly sense of humor. Well, you get some sort of an award for the job. I'll take bets on it. Now, uh, how long did the writing of your book take, sir? A month. One month to produce a literary gem? <laughs> That's utterly amazing. I'm confounded. Well, I, I didn't mean that I took... Now, listen here. I don't want any credit for this book. It's just one of those things. It grew out of a mutual need. Well, I'm afraid you can't help taking credit, sir. Your difference is quite extraordinary, sir, if you don't mind my saying so. It's uh, unique and refreshing. Now, uh, tell me something about your life in the university, sir, about your classes. Well, I'd be glad to. That's my new work. I believe I'll say that uh, teaching's your vocation, Professor, but uh, writing's your avocation. Well, I suppose that's all right. And I wish you didn't have to interview me at all. It's inevitable, Professor Tremont. Your modesty is only equaled by your sense of humor, sir, and that sense of humor is certainly plowed under. If I hadn't read your book, I, I wouldn't believe that you had one. I haven't seen you smile since I came into this room. Professor Tremont hadn't a smile in him. His conscience was as painful as an ulcerated tooth. He was taking credit for something that was not the product of his brain. All he'd supplied, as far as the book was concerned, were his notes. His wife remarked on his silence that night at dinner. And the next night, 
Oh, the pastor of our church wants you to speak to the men's club, right? About the work. I read it today, dear, while you were out. I couldn't put it down. It's fascinating. I didn't know you had it in your mind. Oh, for heaven's sake, Martha. Don't plague me about that horrible book. It's so horrible. It has charm, and suspense. Oh, hush, Martha, for, for my sake. But it's all right for you to be humble, darling, but I think you're carrying it a bit too far for you to snap at me. Well, what will I tell the Indians? Tell him I can't talk to his men's club. I, I, I'm getting ready for the fall semester. Oh, darling, what a fib. You're not getting ready at all. It isn't August yet, and college won't open until late in September. Oh, my modest Violet, I'll fib for you this time, but I won't promise to do it again. Time went on. College opened, and in the classroom, Professor Tremont noticed a new respect in the eyes of his students as they brought him copies of the book to be autographed. At the faculty club, he was in for more than his share of envious killing. A literary weekly published his picture and the story of his hitherto quiet life. A certain book guild made his slim volume the choice of the month. And as honor piled on honor, Professor Tremont could see with his mind's eye the face of the very young man who'd written the book. He told himself that he'd given Conrad Webster the entire royalty check, but that he knew was not enough. He grew silent and morose, and one morning, when his wife was opening the mail, Ooh, letters, darling, since your book came out. When are you going to write another one? I'll never write another book as long as I live, so help me. You might have lost you the present kind of voice there when you speak to me, after all. I'm not your publisher, I'm your wife. Oh, my goodness. The Writers League is giving a dinner for you. For your lifted and guest of honor, they say your book is the most outstanding contribution. Where's the dinner? Miss Wednesday. But didn't you know anything about it in there? Oh, I had some sort of a phone call, but I was preoccupied. So I said yes, as usual. I didn't realize what I was getting in for. I won't go to the dinner, Martha. I won't go. I wish the end of my city. The deuce with the book. Holy. You wouldn't sweetheart me if you knew the truth. Interviews, autographs, stories in magazines, newspapers, reprints, lectures, dinners. I'm fed to the teeth. I can't take anymore. I'm at the end of my tether, I tell you. I can't understand your attitude. I should think you'd be the proudest punch to have written a bestseller. I didn't write it. Darling, do you feel quite well? Your eyes have a queer glazed look. The deuce with my eyes having a glazed look. This is the first moment of the mental letdown I've had since that book came off the press. Telling the truth is always a release. I not only didn't write it, I didn't even read it. <laughs> In just a moment, Betty Davis will be back. We often read that a candidate for the presidency of the United States is stumping the nation during his campaigning. But do you know how the expression originated? 
Actually, it was born during the early days of the West, when candidates for public office went out looking for votes. In order to be seen and heard by the crowds of people who gathered, the candidate was forced to stand on some kind of platform, and what was handier in the backwoods areas than the stump of a fallen tree. From this early open-air type of campaigning, stumping has come to mean any kind of campaigning where a candidate travels around the country to meet the people face to face. Through this method of campaigning, another page was added to your political history. And now back to our story with Betty Davis. Hoyt Tremont's wife was staring at him. Her face had gone suddenly pale. Obviously, she thought that she was in the presence of a madman. And the madman was her own husband. She moistened her lips and spoke in an odd, shaky voice. My dear, you aren't making sense. I am making sense. As I told you, I'm completely sane for the first time in months. Martha, I didn't write that book. But if you didn't write it, who did? I employed a ghostwriter. A ghostwriter? You heard me, Martha. Don't be so dense. The man who wrote the book was a young fellow who graduated from college in June. His name is Conrad Webster. I remember Conrad drinking with a teeny day for the senior class. That's right. He looked so eager. He was gone. He talked about writing a bestseller one day. Well, don't tell me what he looked like. I know how he looks. I see his face in front of me constantly. And don't tell me what he said of that blast of tea. His voice is ringing in my ears every hour of the day and night. It haunts me. He's written his bestseller, and it bears my signature. He's a ghostwriter. Believe me, he's like Banco's ghost. You mean McBear? Naturally. Did you ever hear of any other Banco? Darling. Oh, darling, I'm so very sorry. I didn't dream for one moment that you was... A cheat. Well, you're not alone. Nobody did. Nobody does. That's why I'm being hunted. I'll get huge royalty checks. I'll endorse them and turn them over to young Webster. But giving him money isn't enough. No. No, it isn't. Now what shall I do, Martin? What in heaven's name shall I do? There's only one thing we can do. If you want to regain your, your peace of mind. Oh, stop wringing your hands, Floyd. It's as if you're washing them without super water, like, like, like Gunga Den. The day of the dinner, Professor Tremont called the young reporter who had been the first to interview him and asked him to come to the party if he wanted a beat. The reporter did want a beat. And so he met Professor Tremont in the lobby of the hotel where the dinner was being given. Professor Tremont introduced him to a tall young man in an obviously new tuxedo. The reporter sat at the table directly in front of the speaker's table. The young man seated himself nervously at the professor's right. And when the dinner was over and the Toastmaster had introduced the guest of honor, Professor Tremont rose calmly in his place. Please, 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 not, not quite so much applause yet. I, I'll ask for it later. 
You're honoring me tonight for a fine book. I'll say it's a fine book, and thank heaven your modesty's slipping. <laughs> now, please, please, not just yet. I've only started. I can say that the book is a fine book with no sense of conceit. For I didn't write it. Why? No, the book was written from my notes by a ghost who I'm happy to say is very much alive. He's seated here beside me. I give you Conrad Webster, the real author of a real bestseller. He's the one who deserves your applause, not I. Well, I've had my say. Your turn, Tom Webster. Take it from here. But you heard me, son. Now take it from here. Well, I... Uh, I don't know what to say, except that... that Professor Tremont let me do the job of ghosting so that I could earn enough money to get married. <laughs> and my wife is sitting with the professor's wife down front. She's the girl in pink beside the woman in gray. They, uh, they're both crying. And if I were a woman, I'd be crying, too. I uh, don't know what else to say, except that Professor Hoyt Tremont is a wonderful man. And without his incredible notes, there wouldn't have been a book. And well, this, this is a very great occasion. And it came as an utter surprise. I... I can't say anything more. Well, I can. The story will be in my paper tomorrow morning, and you're a grand guy, Professor. You're top. encouragement from liars. A man like Professor Hoyt Tremont sets him back quite a bit. Art Franklin, the reporter who interviewed Professor Tremont, was something of a student of human nature, and his judgment about people was almost 100% perfect. But once he slipped up.
come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.